anti-social doctor attracted viewers around the world for almost a decade. I'm speaking, of course, about the show House that ran from 2004 until 2012. Today, the executive producer for TV's House is perhaps best known as the director for the X-Men movies, including the most recent film in the series, X-Men Apocalypse. At least, that's the most recent as of this recording. Or maybe you know him as the man who hopped from the Marvel Universe over to DC as he took a break from House and wrote and directed Superman Returns. That was one of only two films that Brian Singer directed while House was still on the air. Well, two films that were released in theaters anyway. He also directed two made-for-TV movies at that time. Other than 2006's Superman Returns, the other film that Brian Singer directed as a break from House's near-decade-long run was the movie that we'll be looking at today. With a budget of $75 million, 2008's Valkyrie tells the story of something we don't see a lot of in World War II movies, Germans who tried to stop their own leader. And since we're coming up on the 73rd anniversary of the events in the movie, Let's take a couple moments this week to compare Valkyrie with history. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It's time for Two Truths and a Lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode. Then, by process of elimination, you'll know which one was a lie. And we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Colonel Stauffenberg died as a result of his participation in the plot to kill Hitler. Number two, while there were some injuries, no one actually died in the bomb blast. Number three, there were actually many more attempts on Hitler's life than what we saw in the movie. Now, if you've listened to this show for a while, and especially if you've listened to a lot of the huge podcasts that are out there, Maybe you've noticed a difference. That's right, this show doesn't have any mattress commercials or ads about saving time by purchasing postage online or maybe getting the best underwear that you've ever worn. Why? Well, to be completely honest, I've had offers from sponsors, but I'd much rather keep this show free from those sorts of things. So that's why I've decided to keep this show completely listener-supported. By that, I mean completely and totally. You. That's right. You are my only sponsor. There's a couple ways that you can help sponsor this show. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast and help support the costs of the show monetarily. Once again, that's patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. But that's not something that everyone can do. And I get that. And that's perfectly all right. A completely free way that you can help sponsor this show is by simply sharing it with your family and friends or someone that you think would like to listen to this show. That's a huge help in growing the show and helping more people find out about it. Thanks so much for all of your support. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Valkyrie.
The movie opens with an oath being chanted by a multitude of people. It's spoken in German, so the text on screen explains what's being said. I swear by God this sacred oath that I shall render unconditional obedience to Adolf Hitler, Führer of the German Reich and people, Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, and that I shall at all times be ready as a brave soldier to give my life for this oath. Looking back through the pages of history, it's easy now to think that this sort of oath seems silly, almost obviously bound to fail. Why would you swear your life over to Adolf Hitler? But it's important to understand this sort of oath and why people would make such an oath. When you start to put this oath into context, all of a sudden, things get a little more real. Let's start with the fact that most countries today have an oath very similar to this. The United Kingdom has what they call the Oath of Allegiance, which, although it's been altered over the years, in its most recent form was updated with the Promissory Oaths Act of 1868, and it states, I, insert your name here, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors according to the law, so help me God. In the United States, we call it the Pledge of Allegiance, and it states, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The reason I mention these is because there's a fundamental difference between the oaths of countries today and the one in Hitler's oath, or even the oaths of countries in years past and the one in Hitler's oath. Did you catch it? The key difference is that Hitler's oath swears loyalty to Adolf Hitler, the man, without any conditions. It is, as the oath states, unconditional loyalty. At least the oath of allegiance for the United Kingdom pledges loyalty to the queen according to the law. So, theoretically, if the government would try to do something against the law, that would free you from the oath, and it would be your obligation to do something about it. But the German oath of allegiance wasn't always that way. It didn't always swear loyalty to Adolf Hitler unconditionally. It used to be a lot like the oaths of the United Kingdom or the Pledge of Allegiance in the United States today. This was Germany's oath of allegiance before August 2nd, 1934. I swear by Almighty God this sacred oath, I will at all times loyally and honestly serve my people and country, and, as a brave soldier, I will be ready at any time to stake my life for this oath. It sounds very similar to the updated oath swearing loyalty to Hitler, but there were some very minor changes made, changes that perhaps some people swearing the oath didn't even really think were a big deal at the time. So what happened on August 2nd, 1934, and why the change? Well, that's the date that Paul von Hindenburg passed away from lung cancer at the age of 86. He was, up until the moment of his death, the president of Germany. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took? 
on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Hitler had already put in place a plan to take over the office of both president and chancellor. So as soon as Hindenburg died, Hitler officially combined those roles into a new role, guide, leader, or in German, Führer. And with this change, the oath of allegiance officially changed to become what we now know as Hitler's oath. I swear to God this sacred oath that to the leader of the German Empire and people, Adolf Hitler, supreme commander of the armed forces, I shall render unconditional obedience, and that as a brave soldier I shall at all times be prepared to give my life for this oath. Why so much focus on this oath? Because, simply put, it's an important part to the plot of the movie. Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg was a very real person, and he joined the German army in 1938. So that means he would have pledged Hitler's oath. Just like the brave men and women who pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America today, this oath wasn't something that they took lightly. But sometimes, sometimes there are those who start to recognize that the oath isn't as it should be. Sometimes you have to protect your country from enemies, both foreign and domestic. Back in the movie, we first join Tom Cruise's character, Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, as he's serving in the 10th Panzer Division in Tunisia, North Africa. He's in his tent, writing about a conflict welling up within him. On one hand, he swore his allegiance to Adolf Hitler. On the other hand, he feels Hitler is destroying more than his homeland. He's destroying the world. And he feels he needs to do something about it. Soon after this introduction to the doubt inside Colonel Stauffenberg's mind, a British airplane surprises the troops and attacks the camp. One of the bombs goes off right next to Tom Cruise's version of the colonel, and after the plane comes around for another pass, he gets hit. The camera doesn't show much here other than a close-up of Tom Cruise, and while we can't see his left eye, there's blood seeping into the sand. 
While we don't know the specifics of how it happened, we know that the spirit of the story here is true. But before we join the movie's timeline with history, let's learn a little bit about the background of Colonel Stauffenberg. After joining the army in 1938, his first major task was to serve during the conquest of Poland in 1939. Then, while stationed as a staff officer at the Army High Command Headquarters, he helped with the invasion of France in 1940 and the invasion of Russia the following year. As 1942 rolled around, the colonel started to question some of the events that we saw Tom Cruise's character mention in the beginning of the movie. In particular, it was the mass murder of Jews and the butchering that took place in the lands they conquered in and around Poland. It made the colonel feel sick. How could anyone care so little for human life? On top of that, there was a growing reckless abandon that Hitler seemed to have for good military strategy. It seemed he was running his own country into the ground. But still, the colonel continued to do his duty, even though there are some reports of him declaring in September of 1942 that he'd be willing to kill Hitler himself. Of course, those sort of things weren't words that you'd shout from the rooftop, but it kind of gives you an idea of where his head was at. With the dawn of a new year, Colonel Stauffenberg found himself in a new role. Just like the movie shows, he was assigned to the 10th Panzer Division in Tunisia. It was a theater of war that had been raging for years, championed by the brilliant Field Marshal Erwin Rommel for the Germans and Generals Bernard Montgomery and George Patton for the Allied forces. Tunisia is a country in northern Africa sandwiched between Algeria on the western border and Libya to the east. It's only about 100 miles or 160 kilometers from Sicily across the Mediterranean Sea. The attack on camp we saw in the movie took place on April 7, 1943, near a place called Sebket en Nual, which is in central Tunisia. It was during this attack when he was seriously wounded. Oh, and as a little side note, the two airplanes attacking the camp in the movie are Curtis P-40s. Originally, director Brian Singer wanted to use visual effects to make the attack seem like much more than just two airplanes strafing ground troops, but because they had to use extra VFX for making Tom Cruise look like his injuries were real throughout the entire movie, they ended up having to use two real P-40s for this scene, which was actually the last scene in the movie that they shot, even though it was one of the first scenes in the movie. And even though the airplanes are moving quickly, if you look closely, you can clearly see the P-40s flying over in the movie have British insignia on them and the shark teeth paint job. It was during the North African campaign that the 112th Squadron of the Royal Air Force first flew the P-40 aircraft, and they did so as the first Allied aircraft to showcase the shark mouth. That was a paint job they copied off of the Luftwaffe's own Messerschmitt BF-110 fighters. Anyway, that may be a very minor detail, but it's little things like that that help add to the authenticity of the film. Of course, we don't really know exactly what sort of Allied explosion caused Colonel Stauffenberg's injuries, so we don't really know if it was two P-40s attacking the camp or if it was something more, but it certainly could have been. All of this is interesting because even though the movie doesn't talk about timelines in the very beginning, the very next scene in the movie shows an airplane landing in the German Eastern Front at Smolensk, Russia. The date, according to the movie, is March 13, 1943. 
And that mixes up the timeline because, as we learned a moment ago, Colonel Stauffenberg suffered his injuries on April 7th, 1943, after the next scene. So it's a little backward. But then maybe that's because the opening sequence almost didn't even make it into the film. There were some edits of the movie that didn't include Tom Cruise's version of the colonel getting injured. The reason for that, according to director Brian Singer, is because they didn't want to make it seem like Colonel Stauffenberg getting injured was the reason for his eventual decision to try to kill Hitler later on in the movie, which, historically speaking, is very true. But ultimately, as we can obviously tell, the filmmakers decided to leave in that opening sequence in the movie. They just don't mention that, again, historically speaking, that opening sequence happened after the next scene. Anyway, back in the movie, the man getting out of the airplanes that landed in the German Eastern Front is none other than Adolf Hitler. After a brief meeting with his generals, Hitler is then headed right back out. Before he goes, though, actor Kenneth Brenall's character, Major General Henning von Treskow, stops one of the men on Hitler's plane and offers him a bottle of liquor. It's meant to look as a gift, but inside is a bomb meant to go off while Hitler is in the air. This whole plot with Major General Treskow is actually quite true. Although the movie doesn't mention it, Treskow was a man born of an old German family who thoroughly believed that Hitler's leadership was doing nothing but leading Germany to utter embarrassment. Not only that, but it's not the first time Treskow plotted to kill Hitler. His first attempt was way back in the summer of 1941. There, he had hoped to simply arrest the Fuhrer while he was visiting the Soviet Union. But when Hitler showed up surrounded by a bodyguard of SS soldiers, Treskow wasn't able to get anywhere near Hitler and it was clear he'd have to go back to the drawing board. His next opportunity came when he found out about a pit stop Hitler would be making. That pit stop would be while Hitler was returning to Germany from a trip to the USSR, and it was, of course, in Smolensk, where the conspirators happened to be stationed. It seemed like the perfect opportunity. And so it was, like the movie shows, on March 13, 1943, when the general attempted his second try to kill Hitler. It was codenamed Operation Spark because they believed Hitler's death would spark other Germans who disliked their leader into revolting against the Nazi party. Assisting him in this plot, the general teamed up with who we can assume is the unnamed soldier helping Kenneth Bernal's version of Treskow. That's the man with him in the tent as Treskow builds the bomb just before Hitler takes off. And we know from history that man was Treskow's staff officer, Lieutenant Fabian von Schlaberndorf. And there were a couple other conspirators as well, but those two were the primary ones involved. And the method by which they planned to carry out their assassination of the Nazi leader was exactly like what we saw in the movie. Plant a bomb inside a bottle of liquor. Just like the movie shows, that bottle of liquor was given to someone on board the plane with Hitler under the guise of it being a gift. That someone was Lieutenant Colonel Hence Brent. In the movie, Brent is played by Tom Hollander. The basic idea was that Lieutenant Schlaberndorf would secretly activate a 30-minute fuse and hand the box to Lieutenant Brandt, claiming it was the payment of a bet that General Traskow had lost to his good friend, General Helmuth Steef. General Steef wasn't a part of the conspiracy at the time, but it shouldn't matter because the bomb was supposed to go off mid-flight. They were just using his name because everyone who knew the two generals knew them to be friends, so it wouldn't set off alarms to send gifts to each other. 
Then, as soon as the bomb went off, Treskow had ensured that some co-conspirators in Berlin would be ready to take over control of the government there in Germany's capital as soon as they heard of Hitler's death. If you're a fan of history, you'll know that Adolf Hitler did not die on a plane over the Soviet Union in 1943. So I probably don't even have to really tell you that the movie is correct in showing that the bomb in the gifted liquor box never went off. Most historians agree that the probable cause for this was the extreme low temperatures. Oh, and if you pause the movie, like I did, to find out what type of liquor it was, you'll see that the movie shows the bottle of alcohol as being Cointreau. That's C-O-I-N-T-R-E-A-U. That is a brand of triple sec out of France. And that is actually the correct type of alcohol that the real Major General Treskow used in his attempt to assassinate Hitler. Remember, the real box was supposed to go to General Steiff, who was not a part of the plot. So when the bomb did not go off, General Treskow knew if he wanted to have a shot at another chance at Hitler, he'd have to retrieve that box before the bomb was discovered. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To retrieve a bomb that was on a plane Hitler was on? Surely no one else knew there was a bomb in there. Yet... But if they did, they'd clearly know Hitler was your target. It had to have been incredibly tense. Although I think the movie makes things a little extra tense just for the sake of the film. Oh, except there's one big difference between what we saw in the movie and what actually happened. We don't really know what it was like for Major General Traskow to retrieve the bomb because Major General Traskow did not retrieve the bomb like we saw in the movie. It was his co-conspirator, Lieutenant Schlabrendorf, who did this for him. And we don't know the real reasons for this, but I think you and I can both speculate a little bit as to the reason why the general might send someone else in his stead for such a dangerous task. Something the movie doesn't mention, though, is that about a week after the failed attempt with the bomb on the plane, General Treskow tried to assassinate Hitler again. This time, it was while Hitler and two other high-ranking officials... Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Göring were to visit a museum in Berlin. They were celebrating Heroes Memorial Day, which is much like the Memorial Day celebrations we have in the United States today. One of the conspirators involved in this plot was Colonel Rudolf Christoph Freher von Gerstorf. That's a mouthful. We'll just call him Colonel Gerstorf. Colonel Gerstorf was the tour guide for the Nazi leadership, and the plan was basically that the colonel would sacrifice himself as a suicide bomber. He had bombs with 10-minute fuses, which should have been plenty because Hitler was scheduled to be there at the museum for at least 30 minutes. Right before he got there, though, the tour guide was notified that, as a security precaution, Hitler would only have about 8 minutes to tour the museum. In actuality, he only spent about two minutes there. The plot failed, and Colonel Gertzdorf barely managed to make it out himself and defuse the bombs before they went off. None of that is mentioned in the movie. Then again, neither is the attempt on Hitler's life in November of 1943, or the one in 1944, February, or in March of 1944. In all, we know of at least four attempts on Hitler's life between the one that we saw in the beginning of the movie and the one involving Operation Valkyrie. Speaking of which, back in the movie, the next scene that we see is Tom Cruise's version of Colonel Stauffenberg at the hospital. His wife, Nina, who's played by Carice Von Houten, 
visits the doctor, and the doctor says that they had to amputate his right hand. He's also lost his two fingers on his left hand, and they couldn't save his left eye. All of that is true. We know that Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg's injuries in Tunisia left him without a left eye, a right hand, and he also lost the last two fingers of his left hand. Well, we don't know if Nina's visit to her husband's hospital bed was like what we saw in the film, but we can imagine what it's like to find your husband coming home from the battlefront with major injuries, but at least he's alive. So Nina's brief but emotional visit to her husband in the hospital makes sense, even if we can't prove it historically. With all of this set up, the major plot point that happens next in the movie happens after Treskow picks up the liquor. That's when we see Bill Nye's version of General Frederick Ulbricht, and they both mention that Oster's been caught. He's not seen on screen in the movie, but the man that they're referring to here is real. General Hans Oster, that's O-S-T-E-R, was another conspirator in the plot against Hitler. His own opposition against the Nazi party started after an event in 1934 that we now refer to as the Knights of the Long Knives. Basically, it was a coup d'etat where members of the SS went around and murdered anyone who opposed the Nazi party, including many leaders within the Nazi party itself at the time. We know of at least 85 people who were killed, with thousands more arrested, when it's very possible that more were killed, we just don't know about it. Of course, they didn't call it murder at the time, but it effectively removed anyone stopping Hitler from rising to power. Anyway, that's a whole other story, but for the purposes of our story today, it was after that political cleansing that Hans Oster started to feel the Nazi party wasn't as great as it was cracked up to be. Looking back through the lens of history, we know that General Oster was a key member of the German resistance against Hitler from 1938 to 1943. That's when, like the movie shows, he was arrested. Although the movie doesn't really mention the charges brought against him, General Oster was arrested not for his conspiracy against Hitler's life, but for helping Jews escape Germany. In fact, it wasn't until after the plot that we're learning about today that General Oster's help with the resistance against Hitler came to light for the Nazi party. After that, of course, Oster's fate was sealed and he would be executed on April 9, 1945. But that's getting ahead of our story. Going back to the movie, there's something that I think you already know, but it's worth mentioning anyway, if for no other reason than to shine a light on it for our purposes. So if we take a step back here, this whole movie is about a secret plot to kill Hitler. That means the very nature of the story in the movie, or really any resistance against a government in power, means that a lot of things were kept intentionally secret and clandestine. Yes, we learned a lot after the Third Reich fell, but there's still a lot that we don't know. There was a lot that they specifically didn't want to communicate in writing or in some way that could be tracked or traced. A great example of this happens next in the movie when we see an air raid and a bomb hit near Stauffenberg's home, causing the record to skip and play Richard Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries over again, thereby giving Tom Cruise's version of Stauffenberg the idea to use Operation Valkyrie in their plot. We just don't know if this happened. However, with the bits and pieces of evidence that we do have, it's probably safe to assume that it didn't happen. 
if for no other reason than the simple fact that most historians don't believe it was Stauffenberg who came up with the plan at all. Instead, they think it was the real person who Bill Nye played in the film, General Albrecht, who came up with the plan. Despite this, the overall gist of the plot to assassinate Hitler using Operation Valkyrie was pretty spot on in the movie. The basic idea was to use a pre-existing plan that the reserve army in Berlin had called, of course, Operation Valkyrie. Using Valkyrie, Obrecht devised that they could essentially mobilize the reserve army to get the forces they'd need to deal with the SS and the rest of the Nazi leadership once Hitler was assassinated. To add a little more backstory to all of this conspiracy to take down Hitler that's not mentioned in the movie, the second in command to Adolf Hitler in the Nazi party was Heinrich Himmler. As the war raged on, it was only a matter of time before many of the German military leaders started to see the writing on the wall. We don't know this for sure, but some historians think that Himmler might have known about a plot brewing to take out Hitler thanks to a meeting he had with a known member of the resistance in August of 1943. That meeting was about getting support from the resistance if Himmler turned against Hitler. After this meeting, Himmler, oddly enough, did not arrest the man that he met with, even though he knew that he was part of the resistance. That man was Johannes Popitz, by the way. He was the Prussian finance minister. In fact, Himmler didn't really do anything. For a man who did so many horrible things to so many people, it wasn't really like Himmler to do nothing in the face of a plot against Hitler. That's why historians have speculated that Himmler might have decided to let the plot run its course. If Hitler was killed, after all, Himmler would be the successor to take over as Fuhrer. And Himmler could have then began peace talks, something that we know from history he did anyway in 1945. But if Himmler did have such a plan, we don't have any evidence of it. It's something that he probably kept very close to his chest anyway, and that goes back to the clandestine nature of all of this. And because of that, really this is just an educated guess at what might have been. But I thought it was fascinating because it adds yet another layer to the already complex plots and conspiracy that was going on behind Hitler's back. Anyway, what we do know is that the movie gets the gist of the plot correct. To be able to use Operation Valkyrie, it would have to be rewritten to fit in with their plan. In the movie, we see Colonel Stauffenberg with an unnamed assistant typing up the changes to the plan. As we learned earlier, it was most likely not Stauffenberg who did this, but rather General Treskow himself. For a couple of months in August and September of 1943, Treskow took a lot of sick leave from his duties and worked on their revised plan. Along with his wife, Erika Treskow, and his secretary, the general not only rewrote Operation Valkyrie, but carefully typed up plenty of other bulletins and documents that they could use to make it seem like the Nazi party was responsible for an uprising. All of this very similar to what we saw in the movie, just we saw the wrong people typing it up in the film. As a side note, these documents would end up getting captured by the Soviet Union after the fall of the Third Reich, so we didn't even know about them until decades after the war was over. Back in the movie, we see Hitler arriving at a fortress. The text on screen says it's Rostenburg, East Prussia, 
at about 12 o'clock p.m. The movie doesn't mention a date, but we know from history that the date is July 20th, 1944. Oh, and the fortress was the Wolf Slayer, a super secret site at about five miles or about eight kilometers into the dense woods around the small town of Rostenburg. That's near modern-day Kitzin in Poland. Oh, and something else the movie doesn't mention was that there were even more attempts on Hitler around this time. Remember the guy who General Treskow was sending the liquor to in the attempt we saw at the beginning of the movie? Well, he might not have been a part of the plot then, but General Treskow tried to turn anyone that he could, and it would seem that General Treskow was successful with his good friend. We know this because on July 7th, 1944, General Steef was supposed to kill Hitler as he was looking at some new uniform designs at Klesheim Castle. That's near Salzburg, Austria. But General Steef didn't do it. He never found the right timing, or at least that was the excuse. Upset at General Steef's inability to get it done, Colonel Stauffenberg took matters into his own hands. It was about this time that he decided to not only manage the implementation of Operation Valkyrie in Berlin, but to also assassinate Hitler himself. About a week later, on July 14th, the colonel attended a meeting with Hitler and Hermann Göring. Inside his briefcase, Stauffenberg carried a bomb and was all set to continue when he noticed Heinrich Himmler was not there. Stauffenberg was sure the plan would only work if they could kill not only Hitler, but also Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Göring, basically the top three Nazi officials. So we can get a sense for why there were so many failed attempts. They weren't trying to kill just one, not just Hitler, but all three. The movie does allude to this, but it makes it seem like it's sort of a last minute thing that Bill Nye's version of General Albrecht forces on Stauffenberg. But we know from the colonel deciding not to use the bomb on July 14th that he must have believed it to be true as well. So that plan didn't work either. The next day, Colonel Stauffenberg flew to the Wolf's Lair and planned to again plant the bomb in his briefcase inside Hitler's conference room. It was set with a timer, so he would set down the briefcase and walk out, flying back to Berlin to help orchestrate the implementation of Operation Valkyrie. Himmler was there this time. So was Goring. Hitler was there, but at the last minute, he was called out. Without Hitler, the plan wouldn't work, so Stauffenberg managed to walk out with his briefcase unnoticed. All of these attempts are important to mention because if you saw how intense things were for Tom Cruise's version of Stauffenberg on the July 20th plot, now imagine that that wasn't the first time he would have done it. But there was something different about that attempt. Another major plot point that the movie failed to mention was that three days after the failed plot, the last failed plot that is, Colonel Stauffenberg caught drift of some rumors floating around that the Gestapo might arrest him for attempts on Hitler's life. That was July 18th. Looking back at it through history, there's no evidence to support these rumors, but that didn't really matter at the time. Stauffenberg felt that if he was to assassinate Hitler, it was now or never. He might not get another chance. And so it was that, just like the movie shows, on July 20th, 
1944, Colonel Stauffenberg flew back to the wolf's lair for another meeting. The movie does a pretty good job of showing what happened that July afternoon. Hitler's conference began at about 12.30 p.m., and almost immediately Stauffenberg excused himself to use the restroom. While in there, he crushed the end of the detonator connected to plastic explosives inside his briefcase. That gave him about 10 minutes. Going back into the conference, he put his briefcase beneath the table within line of sight and just a few feet away from Hitler. There were about 20 other officers in the room at the time as well. A few minutes later, just like we saw in the movie, a messenger came into the room to let Colonel Stauffenberg know that he had a phone call. That was, of course, all planned. It got the colonel out of the room. From there, he didn't return to the room, but instead left the bunker. To be completely honest, we don't know exactly what happened in the bunker. Most historians believe that the account we saw in the movie is pretty accurate to what happened. That would be that Colonel Heinz Brandt, who's played by Tom Hollander in the film, pushed Stauffenberg's briefcase to the side with his foot. This moved the bomb from line of sight and put it behind the leg of the conference table. Again, this is all speculation, but the common thought is that this little movement was enough to deflect the blast from Hitler, thereby saving his life. For the religious among the Nazis who believed Hitler was sent by God, surely they must have thought that this little movement was more than an accident. It must have been providence that saved Hitler's life that day. Of course, we don't really know, but what we do know is that at 12.42 p.m., the bomb went off. Four people were killed, including Colonel Brandt. It appears that the movement saved Hitler's life, but took his own. Oh, and as a little side note, before he joined the German army, Heinz Brandt won a gold medal as a part of the German equestrian team in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. That's just a fun little trivia fact for you. Just like we saw in the movie, upon seeing the bomb go off, Stauffenberg assumed that Hitler was dead. After all, he'd seen the briefcase placed next to Hitler. It probably would have killed him if it hadn't been moved. And just like we saw in the movie, Stauffenberg promptly left the chaotic scene. We don't know if he used a fake phone call like we saw in the movie to get past the checkpoint, but we know that he must have made it past not one, but the three checkpoints that the wolf lair had, because at about 1 p.m., he was on board a plane headed back to Berlin. Until he landed, Colonel Stauffenberg was out of contact. We can only imagine what that two-hour flight must have been like, what sort of adrenaline must have been pumping through his veins, and what thoughts must have been rushing through his head. According to the movie, back on the ground, there's a lot of chaos after Eddie Izzard's version of General Eric Falgeibel cuts off communications from the wolf slayer to the outside world as part of the plan. With no confirmation that Hitler is dead, Bill Nye's General Ulbricht refuses to move forward on Operation Valkyrie. Again, this is pretty close to what actually happened. After the bomb went off, the soldiers at the wolf slayer were trying to figure out what happened. Most of the men inside the bunker, including Hitler, had suffered ruptured eardrums from the sound of the blast. Many had injuries. Some had died. It was chaos. 
probably the biggest inaccurate thing that we saw in the movie would have been that by the time Colonel Stauffenberg's plane landed in Berlin, General Falgeibel had already phoned the Bendler block and let the conspirators know that Hitler had survived the blast. By the way, the Bendler block is the name of an office building complex in Berlin that held offices for many of the army officers involved in the German resistance. Because of that, it kind of served as an unofficial headquarters for the German resistance. When Colonel Stauffenberg landed in Berlin at about 3 o'clock p.m., he only confused matters more when he called the Bendler block immediately with the news that Hitler was dead. Now, there were conflicting reports. In the movie, when he arrives back in Berlin, Tom Cruise's version of Colonel Stauffenberg takes charge as he convinces General Albrecht to enact Operation Valkyrie in General Fromm's name. Like it or not, they're in it until the end. The spirit of this, as well as what happens next, is all depicted fairly accurately in the movie. With the chaos that followed, no one knew who to believe. We don't know what the conversations were actually like between the conspirators and the resistance, but we know that finally General Albrecht issued the orders for Operation Valkyrie almost immediately after Stauffenberg landed at about 3 p.m. Meanwhile, General Fromm wasn't quite sure. Just like we saw Tom Wilkinson's version of the general do in the movie, General Fromm called the Wolfslayer to find out what happened. And just like we saw in the movie, it was Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel who talked to Fromm. Keitel is played by Kenneth Cranham in the film, by the way. Anyway, Keitel told Fromm that Hitler was most certainly still alive, and he also asked about the whereabouts of Colonel Stauffenberg. Immediately, this told General Fromm two things. First, that Operation Valkyrie was doomed to fail because there's no way the officers in the reserve army would continue to follow the military leaders involved in the plot once they found out Hitler was still alive. And secondly, it told him that Keitel suspected the source of the plot came from the building that he was standing in at that moment. Or maybe he was sitting, we don't really know. But it meant he was in danger. From feigned confusion, Colonel, Colonel Stauffenberg, isn't, isn't he there with you? <laughs> anyway, back in the movie, it didn't take long for the Nazi party to hunt down the conspirators. And this is true. About 40 minutes after his plane landed, Colonel Stauffenberg arrived at the Bendler block and immediately General Fromm tried to have him arrested. But that didn't work because Colonel Stauffenberg and General Albrecht overpowered Fromm, holding him at gunpoint and dismissing him of his duties. There's a moment in the movie where we see conflicting orders come through. We see this in an intelligence office that the movie jumps to a few times. One of the orders is from Stauffenberg ordering the reserve army to arrest Joseph Goebbels. The other order comes from the Wolfslayer ordering the arrest of Colonel Stauffenberg. According to the movie, the man who receives both of these orders is the officer in charge of the reserve army, Major Otto Ernst Reimer. He's played by Thomas Krishman in the film. While we don't really know what it was like in the intelligence office at the time, like we saw in the movie... Those contradictory orders did happen, but they didn't come from the people the movie says that it did. The movie implies that one order came from General Keitel at the Wolf's Lair, and the other one came from Tom Cruise's version of Stauffenberg. In truth, it was Heinrich Himmler who was at the Wolf's Lair as a part of the attack, and he had taken over the search for the conspirators. 
We don't know if his orders made their way directly to Major Reimer like we saw in the movie, but Himmler issued orders to stop the initiation of Operation Valkyrie. We do know that Major Reimer got an order, though, and it was from General Paul von Hayes to arrest Joseph Goebbels. General Hayes is not in the movie, but Joseph Goebbels is played by Harvey Friedman. If you're not familiar with who Joseph Goebbels was, he was the Nazi propaganda minister, a very powerful man in the Nazi regime. A couple hours later, another scene that we saw in the movie actually happened. And that's when Ian McNeese's character comes into the building and then starts screaming, the Fuhrer is alive, the Fuhrer is alive. In the movie, this character is just cast as pompous general and he's played by Ian McNeese. But the real man who did this was General Joachim von Korsfletsch. And he was one of the commanders of a district in Berlin. Like the movie shows, he was arrested by the conspirators and put under guard after this outburst. Soon after this, at about 7 p.m., Adolf Hitler had apparently recovered from his injuries because this is when he made his first phone call after the attack. That was the phone call that we saw in the movie when Joseph Goebbels had Hitler on the phone trying to convince Major Reimer not to arrest him and instead to arrest Stauffenberg. And just like we saw in the movie, it worked. Goebbels was not arrested, and Major Reimer and the Reserve Army made their way around Berlin, regaining any of the control that had been lost. At the end of the movie, the plot crumbles faster and faster around the conspirators. We see a gunfight break out in the hallways of the Bendler Block building, and ultimately Stauffenberg and the rest of his allies lose control. All of that is true, as is the way the movie comes to a close. There actually was a gunfight that broke out in the hallway of the building. In that gunfight, Stauffenberg was wounded, like we saw in the movie. By the time 11 o'clock p.m. rolled around, General Fromm had been released, and he was in control of the building, and Colonel Stauffenberg and the conspirators were all under arrest. Oh, and in the movie, there's a moment where Terrence Stamp's character, Ludwig Beck, commits suicide by shooting himself after being captured by General Fromm's men. And that's sort of true. He tried, but the shot didn't kill himself, so one of the soldiers nearby shot him in the neck. Just like we saw in the movie, General Fromm convicted five of the conspirators to death on the spot. Most historians believe that he did this partially because he himself was afraid of Hitler's reaction to the situation. Perhaps if Hitler saw that Fromm had taken care of the attempted assassins, he'd deal kindly with the general. But that's just speculation. We don't know the reason why General Fromm conducted an immediate court-martial. Now, if we just take a quick step back for a moment, I know we did an episode on World War II last week, so this actually makes two in a row, but there's a reason for that. If you're listening to this on the week it's released, then all of this would have taken place exactly 73 years ago this week, on Thursday, to be more precise. That's July 20th, 1944. At 12.10 a.m. on July 21st, 1944, General Albrecht and Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg, along with three other members of the plot, were executed in a courtyard just outside the Bendler Block building. 20 minutes later, at about 12.30 a.m., the SS showed up and stopped any further executions of members of the plot. Hitler had, after all, ordered all of the conspirators be captured alive. 
Despite failing to end the grasp of Nazi fanatics over Germany, I think if there's one statement that encapsulates the essence of the repeated attempts to assassinate Hitler, it comes from a letter that General Treskow sent to Colonel Stauffenberg many months before he would be executed for trying to see the plan to fruition. After Stauffenberg asked whether or not there would really be a benefit to killing Hitler so late in the war when the end of Nazi Germany was near, the writing was on the wall. This was General Treskow's reply, and I quote, The assassination must be attempted, whatever the cost. Even if it fails, we must take action in Berlin. For the practical purpose no longer matters. What matters now is that the German resistance movement must take the plunge before the eyes of the world and of history. Compared to that, nothing else matters. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Today, in the courtyard by the Bendler Block building, there is a memorial just a few feet from where Colonel Stauffenberg was shot to honor the brave men and women who were a part of the German resistance. Their story tells us, like General Treskow said, that even though the Nazis did a lot of horrible things, not everyone in Germany was happy with what was going on. And despite the brutality from the government in power, there were those who did what they felt was right to fight back against what they knew was wrong. If you want to learn more about those men and women, including Colonel Stauffenberg, I'd really recommend starting with a great book called The History of the German Resistance, 1933 to 1945 by Peter Hoffman. I'll make sure to put a link to that book and plenty more resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here's another five-star review from username Suik3 with the title, Excellent Podcast. It simply says, quote, keep them coming, end quote. Well, that's the plan. <laughs> Thanks so much for leaving a review, Suik3. I really do appreciate it. And a little more seriously, I really do hope to keep them coming for as long as I can. Of course, if you want to help make sure that that keeps happening, you're more than welcome to become one of the amazing listeners that helps keep this show going by supporting it over at patreon.com slash based on a true story podcast. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. Colonel Stauffenberg died as a result of his participation in the plot to kill Hitler. Number two, while there were some injuries, no one actually died in the bomb blast. Number three, there were actually many more attempts on Hitler's life than what we saw in the movie. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number two. While Hitler himself was not killed in the blast, one of the things that we learned in this episode was that there were four casualties. One of those was Colonel Heinz Brent, the man we saw reposition Stauffenberg's briefcase in the movie. What did you think about today's story? I'd love to hear from you. You can join the Base on a True Story Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash Base on a True Story podcast. Or if you're wondering what the real people looked like, be sure to follow the show on Instagram. It's at Base on a True Story podcast. 
I always try to post some photos and faces and places behind each episode of the podcast over there. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Or if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old fashioned email at Dan at based on a true story podcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll chat with you again really soon.